Clockwork Rover with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi, welcome to Robohub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, my name is Jonathan Souter. I am a mechatronics engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, California Institute of Technology, which is NASA's uh, only FFRDC, and also the principal investigator of a NIAC, NASA Innovative Advanced Concept, a uh, concept called Harvey, a hybrid automaton rover for Venus. Awesome. I'm going to have a lot of questions on that, but first, would you mind telling us sort of how you got involved in mechatronics? So uh, I am primarily a mechanical engineer background, although when I actually started out at school, I was thinking I would go into civil engineering. I did an internship in civil engineering and realized that if you're a civil engineer, you have to care a lot about the dirt underneath buildings. And I was more curious in structures and skyscrapers and things like that. So switched to mechanical and worked in a lot of different fields in mechanical. Um, And that's sort of where uh, my job role as a mechatronics engineer came in at JPL. They sort of look at traditionally mechatronics is defined as combining electrical and mechanical systems. But at JPL, they sort of more broadly defined that as someone who sort of takes a multidisciplinary aspect towards mechanical engineering. And so really, I've sort of worked in things from uh, software development to uh, toy development to um, uh, field testing to uh, hardware development and have sort of worked everything in between and all across the mechanical engineering spectrum. Um, so that's how I sort of got slotted into this role at JPL and uh, do a lot of things at JPL too, working in things related to materials development, to um, uh, using them in, of course, mechanical applications, uh, to developing uh, motorized systems, to uh, non-motorized robots, which is what Harvey's all about. So can you tell us, say again what Harvey stands for, and then can you tell us a little bit about it? For sure. Harvey stands for Hybrid Automaton Rover Venus. Um, And the big idea here um, is that electronics don't tend to work very well at high temperatures. Um, Now, while there are some silicon carbide and gallium nitride electronics, which can work at Venus temperatures, uh, Venus has an average surface temperature about 460 degrees Celsius. Um, To put that in a little bit of perspective for uh, different electronics and systems. Um, so uh, mil-spec electronics are only certified up to 125 degrees C. And that's sort of the you know highest end off-the-shelf COTS thing that you can buy. Now, there are some electronics that, of course, work higher than that, um, but you increasingly get less and less that you can use. Paper spontaneously combusts about 233 degrees C, and most uh, traditional solders melt at about 300 degrees C. Venus is at 462 degrees Celsius, so way above each of those. And um, so as I noted, there are silicon carbide and gallium nitride uh, electronics, which are typically built for very high power, high voltage uh, applications. The challenge is that those are very power hungry and the highest level integration of those that have been developed are about that of a solar powered calculator. So you can do some very simple things with that, but not anything that's uh, very complex. So when you think about trying to put a rover on the surface of Venus, which is 462 degrees uh, Celsius on the surface, that's a very challenging proposition um, because you really can't take what you do for like the Mars rover, where you have vision recognition systems and are um, have terrain relative navigation. That's not even in the realm of possibility for Venus. So you sort of have to completely re-envision and redesign the rover from the ground up to operate in conditions like that. So just as a little bit of background, why go to Venus? So the thing about Venus is we know almost nothing about the planet Venus. Um, And Venus remains a very huge mystery in our solar system. And 
uh, there's several reasons for that. Um, first, even before we went to Mars, there were actually samples of Mars on Earth because there's asteroids that you know got. Uh, broken off at Mars and became uh, meteors and then have landed on Earth. And we're actually able to examine those to understand a little bit more about the Martian geologic history. Whereas Venus, because of where it's at in the solar system, we have no samples from it whatsoever. Secondly, we've been able to have a lot of missions that go to Mars because um, it's a, you know, the temperatures are a little bit easier to operate there. Venus, on the other hand, has only had a handful of in-situ missions that have really looked at it in close detail. But why is it important to know more about Venus? Well, one of the things that's been very interesting in the last few decades that we've discovered as we've looked out throughout the, uh, our galaxy and through the universe in general, we've started to look at exoplanets and have been detecting exoplanets or planets around other stars on average about one exoplanet per star. Now, of course, some stars have no exoplanets and other stars have multiple exoplanets. Um, but on average, we've been discovering that on average, every star you see in the night sky probably has, uh, on average, one exoplanet around it. And we're really curious which of those exoplanets could potentially harbor life. And doing some really rough statistics off of the very small snapshot of the sky that we've looked at for exoplanets, you get that there could be potentially billions of Earth-like planets, planets that are uh, roughly earth size and in the habitable zone that could support water um, that could harbor life. Now, the question comes up, which of those planets are sort of, uh, you know, ones that are rocky and dead, whereas which ones would potentially be good candidates for life? And one of the things that uh, you can do to help understand that is comparative planetology. Fortunately, in our solar system, we have three rocky terrestrial planets without atmospheres, Earth, Mars, and Venus, all of which are in different areas in the habitable zone. Um, and so what's interesting is by understanding these sort of three planets in our own solar system, we can use that to help extrapolate data and help us understand uh, exoplanets in other solar systems. So if we can understand these three rocky uh, planets with atmospheres in our own solar system, it could really help us out with identifying what planets could potentially harbor life around other stars. Um, so unlocking sort of the secrets of Earth, Mars, and Venus could really help us to understand where else could there maybe be life in the universe or where could humans in many, many generations from now maybe target with some type of interstellar probe or interstellar uh, uh, starship of some type? So I know there hasn't been a mission to Venus in many years, and even those that happened were had limited success. Do you think the heat, uh, the extreme heat, is the contributing factor to why we aren't sending missions there right now? Or are there other challenges? So let's talk about uh, missions to Venus, because right, there's two different uh, sort of... or there's many different categories of missions, but we uh, have orbiters and in situ missions, right? And there have been uh, several orbiter missions that have actually gone to Venus in recent history. Um, and when you're orbiting the planet, of course, it's fairly similar to any other uh, other orbital mission. Of course, at Venus, the spacecraft's gonna get a little bit hotter than what it uh, would at Mars at, at the hottest temperatures. Um, and there are some different radiation design considerations, but um, overall an orbiter mission will work very similarly. When you start getting into in situ missions or missions that go into the atmosphere, and especially those missions that get to the surface, that's where you get into a real challenge. Now, um, the overall, we've sent about a dozen or so probes to the surface of Venus. Most of them were launched by the Soviet Union. And the longest those were able to last is just two hours on the surface before they succumb to the environments. Now, fast forward to today and look at if you look at modern cooling systems and technologies, 
the best we can do to try and keep something at temperatures that you could use like mil-spec electronics at is about 24 hours. You really can't cool a system for that much longer because of Venus's extreme temperature. Now, I should note, the Russian missions, I wouldn't say at all, had limited uh, success. They were actually extremely successful missions and actually lasted uh, longer than what they were initially planned for. However, you really have this sort of ticking time bomb whenever you get into an environment that's hot with regards to how long you could last. So we wanted to look at a different uh, mission architecture that wouldn't be limited by the heat. And how long do you think your proposed mission architecture would be able to last? And what sorts of science do you anticipate trying to collect in that time? So our target mission is to last one Venus diurnal cycle or one Venus day-night cycle of roughly 120 days. Um, so Venus as a planet actually spins very, very slowly. So you have about a 60-day day and a 60-day night on the planet. So it's a really fascinating, odd um, uh, uh, environment there. Um, so the real goal is to collect science data across that whole diurnal cycle so that we can understand what happens as you go through day and night shifts uh, on Venus um, to the atmosphere and to the chemicals in the atmosphere um, and the weather on Venus as well. The primary purpose, though, of a rover as well is to travel during that time period to different geologic units and uh, look at and take samples um, of uh, different uh, rocks so you understand how does the geology vary across the planet, which can help get you to clues is why did Venus become the planet that it is? One of the other fascinating things about Venus, going back to sort of the comparative planetology, is that um, Earth and Venus are actually very similar in a lot of ways, except for, of course, Venus is close to the sun. But its closest to the sun does not fully explain its extremely high temperature uh, compared to that of Earth. Um, you would be hot on Venus, but probably wouldn't, but wouldn't no, be nowhere near 460 degrees Celsius. I think uh, some studies even show that you could uh, you would be below boiling uh, as well on Venus um, in models if you didn't have that thick, heavy, dense atmosphere. So one of the big questions is, how did Venus get this heavy, thick, dense atmosphere? And by understanding the geology, we might be understand what happened on the surface of the planet that helped contribute to that, which made this uh, really massive greenhouse effect, which then uh, superheated the planet. Once again, going back to comparative planetology, this is a very important thing for us to understand is, you know, as we're looking at other uh, exoplanets around other stars for life, we want to understand which planets, you know, would potentially have the same effect going on versus which would uh, have more of an Earth's atmosphere system. So are Earth planetary scientists um, a, a strong driving uh, reason to explore this? So um, there is sort of, you know, secondary things to help understand a little bit of uh, how Earth, be, uh, you know, how Earth is um, evolving and adapting as time goes on and how Earth would maybe respond to different environments as well. I would say the primary uh, driving uh, reason, though, to explore Venus is uh, one in general planetary science to try and understand Venus. And then a lot of that motivation comes by looking at Venus sort of as an Earth 2.0, like a Earth in a slightly different situation, and it almost provides like a control experiment to see what if, uh, you know, uh, a few different factors or some different factors were different on Earth, how would a planet change and what would that planet be like? Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you mentioned that Harvey is um, a hybrid automaton. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the initial design and how it has changed over time? Yes. So um, Harvey originally started 
as the idea was to make an all-mechanical rover. And actually, they just started off without even thinking about Venus necessarily. Um, there were about three or four engineers that I who were working the concurrent engineering session at JPL. And during one of the coffee breaks, um, it was right after we were figuring out how to package all the electronics into our spacecraft. We sort of were like, this is you know annoying and frustrating. What happens if we built a spacecraft without any electronics? What could we do with that? And we started talking about things like Theo Janssen's Strandbis and the Antiki Theorem mechanism, which is a mechanical computer that the Greeks built in uh, uh, in the BC era. And we were wondering what would happen if we sort of took this extreme approach of mechanical computing and applied that to a spacecraft. And what type of what would be a mechanical centric spacecraft? And we started to talk about it. Initially, it started off as a crazy idea, but then realized as we started talking about more and more that hey, there are some applications that could potentially really work for this, um, specifically that of the environment of Venus, where it's so hot um, that it really limits what electrical capabilities that you have. So originally, we went into this project with saying, we're going to do everything mechanical, do mechanical computers like what were uh, developed in the 1930s and 40s as fire control computers for battleships, and um, uh, basically just uh, make this one uh, big mechanism that operates entirely itself. Um, and as we started to dig into uh, the other research going on and other work and starting looking at the configuration, we realized that while it would be possible to do that, there's been a lot of great work and development in um, high temperature electronics, mainly at NASA Glenn, but also at a number of other universities um, that could work in Venus conditions. And as we started to dig into sort of the science that we'd be able to do, we realized that from a science perspective, it really would make a lot of sense to make sure our science instruments are all high temperature electronics. And basically it's sort of an observe and report situation where we're measuring various data and then uh, transmitting it uh, to uh, an overhead orbiter. Um, but as far as driving around the surface of Venus, it actually makes a lot of sense to uh, do that mechanically. So this, the measurements and the signal transmission would be handled with the high power electronics, but all the mobility subsystem would be purely mechanical. Correct, yep. So that's how we sort of split the rover up is we have the science instruments and the data we're transmitting being uh, 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 high temperature electronics. And the idea would be to be a very, very simple system where basically you're making a measurement of one type and immediately transmitting that data. And then you have a clock that sort of uh, flips a switch and then you start transmitting from another instrument and then you transmit from another instrument. You're just sort of cycling through your instruments, transmitting your data uh, from the surface of Venus. So it's a very simple stripped down uh, concept that would work with the uh, capabilities of the silicon carbide and gallium nitride um, electrical systems. Um, now, when you start looking at uh, mobility, though, on the surface of Venus, one of the key challenges is where do you get your power source from? If you look at the rovers on Mars, uh, what we've used previously is solar power. Uh, the challenge with that on Venus is, one, you've got a 60-day night, so you have a long time without any energy at all. And secondly, during the day, the atmosphere is extremely thick and really limits the amount of light that gets down to the surface, um, such that you need to have very, very large deployable solar panels which becomes a challenge for a rover uh, to accommodate, right? To have large deployable solar panels while you're driving across the surface. Um, the other key approach that we typically use for uh, powering spacecraft are radioisotope thermoelectric generators, or RTGs, which are basically uh, some uh, material that's radioactive and therefore hot, and use the temperature differential between that hot material and cold space 
to uh, generate electricity through basically a thermocouple effect. Now that greatly simplifies the system, but that gives you a very basic background of how it works. The problem with those systems is that one, your temperature has risen on Venus, so you don't quite have as much of a temperature differential to deal with. And secondly, now your packaging temperature goes way up and there really isn't, hasn't been developments uh, to uh, package these uh, radioactive materials in a way that would work at Venus temperatures. So um, there are potential paths for that, but they would require you know, many years of research and also very large research budgets to sort of develop a concept to do that. And because RTGs are so expensive, um, a lot of the previous developments of RTGs have really focused on developing multi-mission RTGs, which can be used, you know, in multiple uh, space environments. Uh, so, um, you know, using when you're going to Jupiter or Mars or on deep space probes like Voyager. When you get to Venus, though, the RTG would have to be so specialized that you're developing an RTG specifically for Venus. So the source of energy on Venus that makes sense is the wind. Um, and the wind on Venus uh, is blows fairly slowly, about 0.5 to 1.2 meters per second. Um, but the atmosphere is extremely dense, so there's actually a lot of power in that, or a lot of force in that wind. So it acts as if uh, almost like you're underwater in some ways, would be a good analogy. So RTGs, you mentioned, typically are a hot material that in cold space provides a differential. Would there be any possibility of using the hot space and a cold material to sort of flip the thing on its head? So unfortunately, there's nothing that's really going to stay at a steady state cold at all, at least that we know of yet in Venus's uh, environment, right? Or anything that if you did put, you know, something cold, like let's say you take liquid uh, hydrogen down to the surface of Venus, that would stay for a cold for a little while, but it would quickly cool and turn into gaseous helium uh, or hydrogen as it heats up. And uh, the temperature on Venus, right, just sort of crushes everything because you've got this, you know, you've got the entire mass of the planet that's all at 460 degrees Celsius. So very, very warm. And it's just going to heat anything up that gets into its atmosphere. Um, so uh, in a period of about, oh, 24 to 48 hours, pretty much anything you send there is going to be uh, at uh, very hot temperatures. I see. So are you imagining sort of big wind turbines? Yes. So if you look at the concepts for the rover that we have, it's a wind turbine on top of a four-wheeled rover. Um, that's about 2.6 meters in diameter is the size of the wind turbine. And um, basically that drives a mechanical shaft, which then goes directly to the wheels. Now, there's another reason actually to use the wind as well. Since the wind on Venus is slow, um, it actually makes sense to use uh, that way because if you were to run a generator, what happens is generators like to operate at high speed. So you'd be taking that wind speed, gearing it up to a generator. That generator would be running at about 33% efficiency in Venus's high temperature. And then you'd be running that electricity to motors, which would drive wheels, which uh, then you lose another six or 30% uh, of the energy when you go there. And those motors run at high speeds as well. And then you have to gear it down to uh, drive the wheels. So that approach doesn't make a lot of sense. Whereas if instead you take the wind energy that's already spinning the wind turbine at a slow speed and directly drive it to the wheels, it uh, pretty much directly transfer the energy at the speed that you want uh, to, for mobility and to traverse the surface of Venus. So it's almost like a sailboat. Correct. Although um, one of the key things is since we have a wind turbine on it, um, we are actually able to drive against the wind or um, mm -hmm. if we want to as well. We don't necessarily have to worry about uh, how exactly we're tacked relative to the wind. That being said, if we're 
in such a way that we're driving with the wind, of course, it'd be a little bit more efficient because the wind is pushing on the rover. There's actually another very fascinating rover concept developed by Jeff Landis that uh, would actually use a sail to get pushed across the uh, Venus surface called the land sailing uh, Venus rover. It was called Cypher. But um, one of the challenges with that is you would need a little bit more active control system on that than what you would need for this rover concept. I see. So I wanted to circle back to the signal transmission. Um, you mm-hmm. mentioned that there would be an orbiter as well. And is that part of the same mission design? Or are they being designed in parallel? So yes, we would look at having an orbiter be part of the same mission design. So you'd have both the orbiter and the lander be launched as part of the same spacecraft in all the early mission concept studies that we've done. And then um, the orbiter would, of course, go into orbit around Venus, whereas the uh, landing element and rover would enter the atmosphere. And there's a few different architectures as far as where you sort of split that orbiter and lander during the process. Sometimes uh, you can split them on their way to Venus, sort of halfway between Earth and Venus, and then have the lander come in and the orbiter uh, enter uh, Venus's atmosphere. Another approach is that you capture with Venus with the orbiter and lander combined, um, and then have the landing element later uh, enter the uh, Venus atmosphere to uh, uh, enter into Venus. So I imagine that although Venus presents a lot of challenges for the lander or rover component, some of the um, some of the orbital design can be heritage from other planetary missions. Is that true? Correct, or actually even other Venus missions. There's been a number of Venus missions um, that have been proposed in the past. So um, the good news is that the orbiter side of things is uh, we know sort of the challenges there and how to design an orbiter that would go into orbit around Venus. The rover, though, is a totally new set of technology development. So of all the different components of this, which are kind of new and exciting, which do you think will have the most applicability to like future technology going forward? Um, So one of the key technologies related to uh, uh, Venus operations um, that's really important to look at is high temperature tribology in the gas mixture of Venus. Tribology is a study of uh, basically moving uh, mechanisms and surfaces, and surfaces that are uh, in contact with one, one another uh, when in motion. So it's really important to try and understand um, uh, exactly, you know, how do bearings hold up over the long period of time? We've done some very, very uh, initial tests at JPL actually where we built a representative Venus rover that was powered by a spring and had a uh, reversing mechanism and an obstacle detection uh, system on it that could uh, dr- that we actually uh, showed that was driving in a Venus chamber at JPL. But we only operated that for about 10 minutes or so at Venus temperatures. So we definitely need to start extrapolating that for a longer uh, mission lifetime um, as well as we start to develop things further. But the goal of this was just sort of prove the initial uh, basic concept of the rover that it would work. Okay, so you're, um, you've been involved in all aspects of this project, I'd imagine, and a lot of other very innovative work. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into either the space industry or the robotics field and just create really innovative ideas? So I think one of the things is, you know, stay constantly curious. And when you start getting an interesting hunch about stuff or a random idea, start to pursue that and chase it, right? That's what really happened with this rover project is we were came up with a sort of crazy idea. We didn't have a rover necessarily in mind at first, right? Of building a mechanical spacecraft. And what would that look like? And how would that potentially exist, right? And sort of idea that sort of captured our curiosity 
And then we started to, you know, uh, start think down that rabbit hole and started to uh, explore it and actually came up with a concept that uh, we believe could help uh, develop future Venus missions and could really enable uh, uh, mobility on the surface of Venus in the future, which was very exciting. Uh, the other aspect of things is, you know, it requires a lot of hard work and there's going to be failures along the way. Uh, there were a number of things that we built with regards to springs at high temperatures and figured out a lot of materials that didn't work good for uh, storing spring energy at high temperatures uh, as we developed this concept. So, you know, you're going to absolutely find things, a lot of ways that don't work, but uh, what's important is to keep persevering and pushing through it. Awesome. Well, I think that's pretty much all the time we have, but thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lily. Sadly, that brings us to the end of this episode. But don't despair, there's plenty more to discover at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And not just our past episodes, Robohub boasts loads more free content about the latest in tech and robotics, including news features and videos. And if you enjoy our podcast, you can also visit our website to find out more about supporting us through Patreon. The podcast is entirely run by volunteers who freely give their time, and so we really rely on small donations from listeners like yourself to keep us going. Just a few dollars a month can make a huge difference. So check it all out at robohop.org forward slash podcast, and we'll see you again with a brand new episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Clockwork Rover with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.